Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host Tyler Rouse. Today's episode is the second in my three-part miniseries on the history of laparoscopy. We'll pick up where we left off last time, at the dawn of the laparoscope, and follow along with some of the early innovators that have led us to the modern era. There are too many people to include everyone, but a few of them have some fascinating and bizarre stories worth learning about. So let's get to it on this episode of Legends of Surgery. Before we jump in to meet some of the surgeons that have contributed to laparoscopy, there are a couple of overarching storylines worth highlighting. Once again, we'll see how these forward-thinking individuals were criticized and ridiculed to the point where one actually had to undergo a scan to make sure he wasn't brain damaged. I'm totally serious. The other old theme is that most surgeons were slow to adopt these changes. Maybe this is understandable given how truly revolutionary this kind of surgery was then, which we take for granted now. In fact, I've heard laparoscopy be described as the third revolution in surgery after asepsis and anesthesia. But what may come as a shock to some of you, as it did me, was that it was mainly gynecologists, not the general surgeons, that can be credited with pushing this technology forward, at least until the 1980s. One of the main limitations in laparoscopy has been technology, and some pioneering physicians have recognized this and applied new technologies to overcome these limitations. Carl Storrs, whose name you may know from the medical equipment company he founded, worked with optical designer Harold Hopkins to greatly improve laparoscopic imaging. Zollicoffer, a Swiss gynecologist, introduced the use of carbon dioxide instead of filtered air or oxygen to create pneumoperitoneum in 1924. Quick definition, pneumoperitoneum, pneumo for air, and peritoneum for the lining of the abdominal cavity. This was for a few reasons. One being that CO2 had a fast absorption, the second being that CO2, unlike oxygen, doesn't explode when ignited. Heinrich Koch and Hans Frangenheim contributed to improvements of air insufflation apparatuses and countless others added to the continuing evolution of the technology needed to get us to where we are today. One of the early leaders in laparoscopy that had a big influence on many of the surgeons that came after him was the French gynecologist Dr. Raoul Palmer. His early work is intimately intertwined with World War II and is fascinating. Palmer was already practicing in Paris when it was occupied by German forces. This led to significant hardships on the Parisians including the shortages of nearly everything, including electricity. And despite this, Palmer actually began experimenting with laparoscopy in 1943 with help from his wife Elizabeth. He had to make many of his own instruments, as manufacturing had ground to a halt. Needing canisters, or sparkettes, of carbon dioxide, Palmer would ride his bike into the countryside to refill them, as gas was reserved for public transportation in the German army. Now, Using these sparkettes, he made a simple insufflator and was able to view genital organs with the cystoscope, he was one of the first to realize that the intra-abdominal pressure must be carefully controlled to avoid injuries to abdominal organs, and was a proponent of putting patients in the Trendelenburg position, meaning head down, to help with visualization. He also pioneered the use of the varus needle to safely inflate the abdomen, and I'll get to that a bit later. Amazingly, his early laparoscopies were done under local anesthesia, because the small rooms of the Broca Hospital where he worked, which dated to the 19th century, were too small for an anesthesiologist and the equipment. Not surprisingly, none of his patients allowed a second laparoscopy. It wasn't until 1952 when he got laparoscopy into the operating room. It was in this year, too, that advances in optical equipment allowed for much greater illumination. His wife explained that, quote, 1952 changed everything for us, end quote. But in case you thought it was all too easy, she also noted that the light bulb was searingly hot, but was cooled through the introduction of cold air. This apparatus, called the drapier, made a lot of noise. We could hardly make ourselves understood during the laparoscopy. Now Palmer was a leader in fertility studies, 
but can mainly be remembered as an educator and promoter of laparoscopy, traveling the world with his equipment to spread the gospel, so to speak. And the fact that he mastered five languages, both spoken and written, probably made this a whole lot easier. His little Broca hospital became the center of laparoscopy in Europe, with hundreds of physicians from around the world visiting to learn this new technique. Now, one of the most influential people in the history of laparoscopic surgery is Dr. Kurt Sem, a German gynecologist and inventor. He definitely had a few interesting twists to his story, including this one. At the age of 17, in 1945, Sem was drafted into the Wehrmacht, the German army during World War II. He was captured by the Soviets and held prisoner of war. Following his release, Sem went to medical school, which he financed by working as a toolmaker. Interesting character already, right? His early interest was in fertility studies, and he had actually invented an apparatus for carbon dioxide insufflation into the fallopian tubes, meaning using the gas to test if the tubes were open. At a meeting in 1956, he met Dr. Raoul Palmer, mentioned earlier, who introduced him to laparoscopy, and who realized his invention would work for insufflating the abdomen to create pneumoperitoneum. Sem worked in secret on this, as his chief did not approve of laparoscopy, but his automatic insufflating device was a breakthrough, allowing monitoring of abdominal pressure and gas flow. When he demonstrated his device, the anesthesia was inadequate, leading to failure of the procedure. His irate chief literally ordered him out of the OR. Sem's greatest works in laparoscopy, which he called pelviscopy, happened when he moved to the University of Kiel in northern Germany, where he became the forerunner of therapeutic laparoscopy, meaning doing actual procedures rather than just looking around to make a diagnosis. His colleagues were so disturbed by his work that they, and as I said before, this is true, induced him to undergo a brain scan to rule out brain damage as a cause of his bold, innovative approach. Think about that. But this doubt did not stop Sem. In 1981, he performed the first laparoscopic appendectomy. That's right, the first lapapi, as they're now called, was done by a gynecologist. The reaction from the German Surgical Society was to request his suspension from medical practice, and his paper on the procedure was rejected for being unethical. But again, Sem continued his work, even proposing the first laparoscopic removal of the gallbladder, aka laparoscopic cholecystectomy, or lap coli, but as we'll see later, someone else beat him to it. But don't worry about Sem. He started a company called WISAP, which creates laparoscopic equipment, and is still around today. He was also a leader in simulation training for laparoscopic surgery, creating what he called the Pelva Trainer in 1985. Just about every surgical training center now has some form of virtual trainers for learners. Kurt Sem's impact on laparoscopy has been significant to say the least and is a name worth knowing. Now I'm sure most of you have heard of the first test tube baby, meaning the first child born by in vitro fertilization, aka IVF. But I wonder how many of you know that it was a surgeon using laparoscopy that helped pioneer this. Dr. Patrick Steptoe, a British gynecologist, first developed his laparoscopic skills in the late 1950s, which he used predominantly for sterilization, i.e. tube tying. Now, interestingly, his French and German colleagues weren't typically allowed to do these kinds of cases because of the strong influence of the Catholic Church, but Steptoe, being in England, was able to do these unimpeded, although his colleagues were, to quote Steptoe, skeptical and nervous of the method. As we learned earlier, many of the first laparoscopists came from the European continent, so when Steptoe wrote a book on laparoscopy, his was the first written in English. This helped introduce the burgeoning field to North America. But what Steptoe is most famous for, as I mentioned earlier, is his work in fertility. He paired with biologist Robert Jeffrey Edwards after Edwards read his article, Laparoscopy and Ovulation. From their earliest experimental work, criticism was harsh from the media, their colleagues, religious figures, and even the Medical Research Council of England, requiring them to find private funding, mostly from the U.S. 
It didn't help matters that throughout the 1970s, not one patient got pregnant through in vitro fertilization. A quick aside here, their method was to obtain oocytes, or eggs, from a mother primed by medications and then harvest them by laparoscopy. Those eggs would then be fertilized by sperm, this is the in vitro part, meaning occurring outside a living organism. It comes from the Latin word meaning glass, so it translates to in glass, as in in a test tube or culture dish made of glass. I never knew that before. The opposite is in vivo, again from Latin meaning in a living thing. Okay, so in 1977, a year before Steptoe reached the age of mandatory retirement from the National Health Service in England, a young woman named Leslie Brown got pregnant by IVF. The public response was intense. Reporters would circle the hospital with long-range cameras, hoping to get her picture, and would try to get into the hospital disguised as window cleaners. Patient records were sold to the media by staff, including her ultrasound images. Ms. Brown had to stay with Steptoe's daughter in another city, as reporters had camped out by her house. And once admitted to hospital, she had to go under an assumed name, as only two staff members knew who she really was. A bomb threat was called into the maternity ward, forcing its evacuation probably in an attempt to flush Ms. Brown out of the building. After that, the police were needed. Finally, on the day of delivery, Steptoe left the hospital in the late afternoon and snuck back in by a side door to perform a C-section that night. Louise Joy Brown, the first child born by in vitro fertilization, was born July 25, 1978. She is now 38 years old and has two children of her own. Edwards, Steptoe's partner, won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 2010. So why didn't Steptoe? Well, he died in 1988, and sadly the Nobel Prize is not awarded posthumously. But just a few months before he died, Steptoe witnessed the delivery of the thousandth baby conceived by in vitro fertilization. The last pioneering gynecologist I want to at least briefly mention is Dr. Cameron Nezet. Up to this point in our story, all these laparoscopies have been done with the surgeon looking directly through the scope of the patient. While this helped the surgeon stay oriented, it greatly limited what was possible due to the awkward positioning and the fact that only one surgeon at a time could work. Nezit's contribution was to develop video laparoscopy. Operating off of a monitor, meaning to stand up and look at a TV screen, rather than bending over to peer through a scope, seems routine now to anyone practicing, but at the time it was thought to be a radical change. And the story of how he did this is a bit unorthodox. As a gynecology resident, Nezat had the idea to connect a video camera to his laparoscopic eyepiece, which he did by suspending an unwieldy camera from the ceiling with duct tape and squinting at a low-resolution image on his monitor. The typical resistance came in criticisms that it was dangerous and a technique that only about one in a hundred would be able to perform. At the time, this escalated to the point where a blue ribbon panel at Stanford was created to investigate his work. Of course, he was exonerated completely, and video laparoscopy is now the standard of practice. This change opened up the field of laparoscopy to much more complex procedures, many of which Nezid himself pioneered. And before we get to the events that took laparoscopy from a niche area of gynecology to the critical and ubiquitous technology that it is today, I want to cover an area we've skimmed but not really delved into, and that is entering the abdomen. As you now know, right from the earliest days of laparoscopy, it was understood that the abdomen had to be filled with air of some kind to inflate it, allowing instruments to be inserted and have room to move about. But the issue was how to get the air in without injuring the organs in the abdomen. The most common method was similar to that used by Kelling in his experiments, inserting a needle blindly. Now this method is still used today using a varus needle, which is spring-loaded. Basically it has a sharp tip which springs back when it no longer has resistance, so that once the abdomen is entered, it pulls back leaving a blunt tip to fill or insufflate the abdomen. 
This safer needle was invented in 1932 by Dr. Janos Veres, a Hungarian internist. Interestingly, he did not invent this for laparoscopic surgery, but rather to collapse the lungs of tuberculosis patients. Remember episode 21 on Norman Bethune. Dr. Raoul Palmer, as we mentioned earlier, introduced the Veres needle for laparoscopy. But this method is not perfect, as there can be iatrogenic injury. Wait, what's that? So iatrogenic means resulting from the activity of physicians. From the Greek iatros, meaning healer or physician, and genus, or like genesis, meaning born or produced by. Typically, it means an adverse or bad outcome, but literally it means any result. But I digress. As the varus needle goes in blind, some surgeons sought an open technique. Now, one of these was Dr. Harith Hassan, an American gynecologist. In 1969, as a newly minted graduate, Hassan took a course on laparoscopy but had some reservations. Here it is in his own words, quote, I did not appreciate the way the abdomen was being insufflated blindly with a needle before being accessed blindly with a sharp trocar. I thought that performing two blind procedures as a prelude to better visualization of the abdominal cavity did not make sense. I asked the faculty whether it may not be better to make a small mini laparotomy incision to gain access to the abdomen under vision and then insufflate with gas and proceed. The response was politely dismissive, end quote. Now, despite this, Hassan persevered and invented his own instruments, performing the first open laparoscopy in 1970. He actually had to do this at a different hospital due to lack of support and even bought all the equipment himself. In 1973, when Hassan tried to publish his work, it was rejected with a few negative comments, one of which I'll share with you, quote, From reading all this detail, the reader is impressed that open laparoscopy is not worth the effort. If a laparoscopy is necessary, do laparoscopy. If a laparotomy is necessary, do one. Now, it took a while, but the Hassan technique, as it is now known, became widely accepted and mainstream, particularly by general surgeons as they joined the party in the late 80s and early 90s. So speaking of general surgeons, let us get to the seminal event that led to the widespread adoption of laparoscopy, the first laparoscopic cholecystectomy, gallbladder removal, a.k.a. lap coli. Now, many younger physicians who have trained in the last 20 years or so have probably only seen a few so-called open cholecystectomies, but up to the 1980s this was the only method available and had been since 1882 when Dr. Carl Langenbach, a future podcast subject, performed the first one. The incision was large and went through a lot of muscle, creating a long and painful recovery. This made the gallbladder the ideal candidate for improvement by laparoscopy. Now, although many sources state that a team of French surgeons did it first, and we'll get to them, in actual fact, it was a German surgeon named Eric Mew in 1985. He was concerned that gynecologists were chipping away at traditional surgical procedures, and he was right. For example, the first laparoscopic inguinal hernia repair was done by gynecologists. Mew constructed what he called a galloscope, which was a unique instrument setup, actually using some of the equipment created by SEM. On September 12, 1985, he performed the first laparoscopic cholecystectomy in roughly two hours. Mew continued to make changes to his setup, including changing the port sites, meaning where the instruments enter the abdomen, and even did so-called gasless laparoscopic cholecystectomies, meaning without pneumoperitoneum, as well as losing the optical system and looking directly through a metal tube in the abdomen. He preferred this method as he felt it was quicker and could be done through one skin incision. His presentation of his approach was ridiculed and was called Mickey Mouse surgery, with comments like, small brain, small incision. Shortly after this, the more well-known pioneers of lap coles in France began describing their results. Dr. Philippe Mouret in Lyon was a general surgeon that shared a practice with a gynecologist and so saw firsthand the benefits of laparoscopic surgery. 
In March of 1987, Murray did his first laparoscopic cholecystectomy, which took two and a half hours, during which he had to lie on the patient's right thigh as he peered through the laparoscope as video was not available. And there's a great anecdote about this. Apparently, Murray was worried about how such a radical change from the traditional open approach would be accepted by his colleagues until he rounded on his patient the next day. She was fully dressed and ready to leave the hospital, angry because she did not believe that Murray had removed her gallbladder. And Dr. Francois Dubois in Paris and Jacques Parisset of Bordeaux, in conjunction with Murray, continued to work and perfect their laparoscopic cholecystectomies and soon became known as the French Connection. Word soon spread, and a number of general surgeons in the U.S. championed this new procedure. Now, an entire article could be written about why general surgery took so long to come around to laparoscopic surgery, but following the successes seen with gallbladders, which, following a presentation of this new method at a national meeting in the U.S., led to nearly worldwide adoption practically overnight, the media picked up at last on its impact, calling it Band-Aid surgery, and patients began to demand this new surgery. Throughout the 1990s, nearly every major surgery you can think of had been at least attempted laparoscopically. The new era of laparoscopic surgery had truly begun. The next revolution was on its way with the dawn of the new millennium. And that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. In the next episode, which will be the third and final part in this miniseries, we will look at the future of laparoscopy, more specifically at the age of the robots. Don't miss it. Now please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening. Thank you.